0: Welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one
1: of your co-hosts, Connor mcnamara Stratton, And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And here
0: we are yet again
1: with our Desperate Plea. That's right, I forgot we have to make a Desperate Plea. But you know what, Jack?
0: Yes? It's a little less desperate today Mm -hmm. because we have... As of today's date, 15 reviews. And let me tell you, when we started our Desperate Please, we had five reviews. I'd just like to extend a bit of gratitude to those who have taken the time to put in the rating. It really does mean a lot. And trust me, I don't like to rate things. My phone tells me to do something. I just want to turn it off. So, thank you. It's and true. If you haven't done it, this is a great opportunity. Let me tell you, great opportunity.
1: It will be much appreciated. Yeah, opportunity is knocking. Get on out there and answer the door. Um, yeah, we do appreciate it. Literally every time we get a new rating, I text Connor and I'm like, we got a new rating. <laughs> Not that I check that often, and we're not compulsively checking, but when we notice, uh, it goes down pretty smooth on this end. So, yeah, we love it. Thank you for everybody. We have
0: a lengthy correspondence every time there's a new rating. We have got a great poem this week, and we had a a bit of change of plans to um, in honor of The passing of W.S. Merwin, who passed away on March 15th at the age of 91. Um, And Merwin, for those who don't know, was one of the most acclaimed uh, American poets that you can probably think of. Um, He won two Pulitzer Prizes. He's won a National Book Award. He was the 17th u.s poet laureate in 2010 i believe he's won basically everything he um you know has written you know for decades to great acclaim um his first book uh that won the pulitzer was the lice in 1967 just as other biographical you know he was a he was a big he was very active in the anti-war movement during Vietnam, which that book, The Lice, was sort of uh, deeply um, invested in. He also was a, um, a big conservationist and he at some point moved to Hawaii where he lived for the rest of his life and basically um, regrew a part of where he was living into a rainforest sort of back into a raincourse. He sort of restored it. And I just read this thing that was like, someone was visiting him and people had sent him poems. And he was like, he would like read the poems and comment on them and whatever. And then he would put the, the poems into the compost pile. And at first the guy was like, this is pretty dastardly, but... Um. then he was like, well, this is actually the greatest honor to be returned to the earth from whence you came. That's a little anecdote. but um, I,
1: That's so cool. And I mean, yeah. it's, it's nice because it does illustrate one of the big things I think about Merwin, which is that a lot of what shows up in his writing life is something that he and and his sort of beliefs about writing and about being in the world just as a person are things that he really made a conscious effort to live out as a human being. Because um, I think it's easy to hold a lot of these beliefs, but harder to act on some of them. So the fact that he was always out there in the field, like tilling the earth, working on making the world a more beautiful and better place, not just with his words, but also with his actions is is really neat. Like that's something that I've always thought was kind of cool about him
0: he also has the most poety name of all poets w.s merwin yeah i mean it's like
1: whoa that's like oh here's a cool sounding name that also just oozes authority yes and like mystique yep but not in a harsh way It's a very smooth W.S. Merwin. (laughs) Lots of nice round sounds in the S.
0: (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. And so the the poem that we picked is very on the nose, but it's also one of the poems that he's most well-known for, so we thought um, it would be a good one. The title is called For the Anniversary of My Death. Um, and he wrote it um, when he was in his 30s, so it was probably the 60s, um, and it came out in The Lice, which was published in 1967, I think. Here it is. For the anniversary of my death by W.S. Merwin. Every year, without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out, tireless traveler like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men. As today, writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, and bowing not knowing to what.
1: I like the way you read that just now. Oh, Thank you. That was particularly nice. I really like the way that you (laughs) put together the bowing and knowing sounds at the end, the hearing, all the INGs that come in there. The way that you read it, I thought really accentuated those in a way that, I don't know, I would have thought to accentuate them when reading. And I thought that was really cool. Thank you. I have thought a lot about the sounds in those two lines. I'm astonished. And I have... Astonished. Shocked. Shocked, I tell you. I have
0: a lot to say about them. I can't wait. Before we dive into the nitty-gritty lovely realm of the Sonic, we must first traverse the rather mundane realm of the narrative. So... As the title suggests, um, for the anniversary of my death, the speaker is sort of thinking about, um, that there is a day on which he will die and every day, every year, he's sort of past this day continually. Um, and so the first stanza is kind of describing that, um, and. You know, he's passed the day when the last fires will wave to me. The silence will set out. The silence is compared to a, a tireless traveler um, who sort of rep will, the, the, the silence which begins when he dies um, and which will go on. Um, and then the sort of the second stanza, then I will no longer um, find myself in life as in a strange garment, um, sort of describes... Like you know, what will no longer be um, and you know, and sort of the way he describes it in in crude terms is is a one of surprise and one of sort of like estrangement, so he compares you know um, finding himself in life and that's compared to being in a strange garment um, and and then he kind of goes back to, um, or he sort of, you know, he started out pretty big, big thoughts, talking about death, talking about um, life, we're talking about abstract mortality, all these things. And then the poem ends by kind of zooming into the very, very present moment um, as today, writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, um, which you know we get the speaker sort of at the writing table, writing presumably this poem. Um, and then we sort of end on a very, hard to put this in the basic plot, but a, a line of uncertain meaning um, and bowing not knowing to what, um, which I think could go a few, different ways but yeah that's kind of the the gist of
1: of the poem i think i concur wholeheartedly so yeah i don't know if there's a particular place you want to begin um but i have one thing that jumped out at me that i'm sort of curious about we gotta go there excellent so this is a little more big picture question not quite down to the sound level um But as you pointed out, he starts off by comparing... By talking about life with this sense of estrangement. And he calls it a strange garment. And that he... When he's talking about being surprised, that's, you know, in life as in a strange garment. Surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men. Like, there's a lot of stuff this guy's surprised by in life. And usually, we think of death as the more mysterious or surprising, unknowable experience. But really the way the poem sets this up to me is that both life and death have a lot of surprising, unknowable, weird, you know, things going on in them. And the experience that Merwin is trying to describe is this strange mixture of life and death where you're in life passing the day of your death. So there's that kind of mixture going on. But particularly, I was curious about the fact that both life and death are described with this kind of, unease and mystery mingled into both of them. Because I think the easy thing to do would be to try to contrast the two of them entirely, where life is what I know, it is my familiar environment, it's the people I love who I see every day. And then death is this strange thing that will happen where I don't see them anymore, or my entire routine is completely torn apart. But he goes for this subtler distinction. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the way that this idea of mysteriousness and unknowability, which comes to a point at the end of bowing, not knowing to what, how that plays out in the poem in relation to both life and death.
0: Yes. Um, wow. That is a very good and big question. I have a few thoughts. Yeah. One initial thought, which is not my own, um, as I was sort of reading about him um in the sort of Poetry Foundation's overview of Merwin, one thing that they note is um, that a recurring theme for him is man's separation from, from nature. Um, the poet saw the consequences of that alienation as disastrous, both for the human race and for the rest of the world. Um, so I think, you know, that there's an element of that here when you when you talk about this the surprise um in life or the the somewhat the separation we're not going to go into his whole body of work but this seems to be one example of of at least a texture of that where it's not just death that is the sort of separation um, that there is this kind of condition of being in the world and probably being in the world as we've sort of constructed it, um, or uh, our, the particular problems of our society or something that have, you know, separated or alienated us from our own lives and the world around us. Um, and that speaks to a little bit, I think, maybe his, his investment in, um, you know, restoring the natural world or something as a kind of a, uh, a way to resolve that alienation. Um, Here, though, it does seem like it's a less pained separation. You know, it's surprise, I guess, which is not necessarily, it's like, Oh, wow, the earth. One woman loves me. Men are shameless, which are all, I guess, true.
1: No, and and particularly in the context of a poem in a book, largely grappling with what was going on in Vietnam and the US involvement in the Vietnam War, the shamelessness of men takes on a particularized meaning. Um, I think it works independent of that specific context as a statement in the poem, but knowing that this is part of that collection put a point on that for me.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that has interested me about this poem, which may be a way to answer your question, although I'm not exactly sure, Um, is that what's kind of like a little brain bender of the poem is, like, he is sitting here alive. um, And for us, he's sitting in the, you know, way back and is sort of being, like, a not just imagining his death, but, like, situating his death as, like, something that's, already been prefigured or like is already kind of happening you know it's like every year he passes the day of his death and so there's a kind of circling um that's happening and it gives me this feeling of like you live you're living or he's living you know with his death i guess like that that's a part of the way that he's He's in his life, I guess, Um, so that death for him is not necessarily or not just something that one, um, you know, that that happens at the end of one's life, but that it's a presence um, and a kind of alienating presence, perhaps, or surprising presence um, while one is still going on in their life
1: (laughs) very into it love it super into it um (laughs) gives me a couple of different thoughts um yeah the first of which is that i'm really glad you said presence because it got me thinking um that because what he's essentially reckoning with is uh this like really difficult to pin down idea that is one that also shows up in most memorials which is the presence of absence and so in thinking about death while alive you are thinking about how this big absence of death is present in your life conceptually. And I think the conceit of the poem, the title for the anniversary of my death is a really smart way of making that juxtaposition concrete. It takes this big thing, which like we all think about death sometimes, but he turns it into this very specific, one day I will die and that day happens every year. Like I remember Steve Jobs died on my birthday. And I thought like every year my birthday is now the day Steve Jobs died, you know? Yeah. Um, It's like that kind of weird thing that happens. Um, But specifically with this idea of the presence of absence, it's one that was discussed explicitly by the designers of the 9-11 Memorial, which I also think is a, an interesting way that this idea has been made physical. And I also always think about 9-11, but that's a separate issue. Um, (laughs) But the way that they designed it so nothing was built up where the towers once stood. And in fact, where they are, there are these reflecting pools that are dug down into the earth and there is water that flows down into them. And that whole stretch of lower Manhattan where everything is built up at least 20 stories is forever vacant. And that area of the skyline, there's forever the hole that is twin tower sized in the New York skyline. And it makes physical through those buildings absence, the presence of what happened there. Um, And something kind of similar is done at the Oklahoma City, the Memorial for the Oklahoma City bombing where it's more temporal. So at the front of the Memorial you walk in through um, and the time is marked as the minute before the bombing. And I believe on the other side is the time, the minute after. And so it kind of marks that as like this interesting temporal space uh, where again, you're similarly being taken out of your regular existence. And it makes the the absence that those minutes rendered more present for you. Um, but in thinking about being absent from the world, he makes that present for you in this poem. And yeah. he does it by giving it form in a temporal sense. He turns this day, as you were saying, it's like a predestined thing in a way. Um, but by taking that concept and making it something you're right it takes it it makes the absence of death present in a different kind of way that you can almost then begin to access it and reckon with it which is what he does and i think it's particularly interesting that at the end where he's talking about bowing and not knowing to what what gets his attention is he's writing after three days of rain hearing the wren sing and the falling cease it is, in fact, the absence of the falling rain that has become so present that has Mm -hmm. caused him to take notice. So that kind of fit in along with what I was thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really right. It's such an interesting, as a side note, way to talk about, like, I don't know, just a great description of the end of rain. I don't know. Um, It makes the sound... The sound of rain, its action of falling. Yeah, and then cease is just, just good.
1: Sounds good. It's a good unexpected way to describe it because there's a yeah. lot. Of, I mean, you know, the raindrops, constant drumming stopped is just such right. a like, lame way to say it. <laughs> I think it was Merwin who said that you know a poem is done because you can't change any word in it or something like that he has a quote that's something along those lines Uh-oh. and I think it really fits this poem where you can look at almost every single word and phrase within it and just think that's gotta be the way it is for this poem to work the way it does and I
0: think that yeah the the way that um, present absences is, is also uh, in the first stanza a lot so you know the way that Death. So death is kind of embodied um, by silence, who's the sort of tireless traveler. And so here we have, you know, the absence of sound again being made into a thing um, that is present. Um, And then we have this great line, you know, like the beam of a lightless star. Um, So we're made, we're sort of asked to imagine a star that has no light that is somehow shooting some kind of beam out, even though it wouldn't have any light to beam, if that makes sense. Um, But yeah, that's such a, that's like such a great way of synthesizing the sonic and the visual um, in a way to capture that, that kind of both the, the foreverness of it, um, but also the, the, intense presence of that kind of absence
1: I know it's just a way of describing darkness too but in a way that makes it an action it's the beam of a lightless star it's being cast by something but it is in fact i mean what is the beam of a lightless star i i read that as being basically darkness but it's more than that it's made more than that in the way it's described because it is made active and you're you're yeah. right it is another instance i totally didn't contextualize it that way for myself until just now, but it is another way of bringing home, like even absence, even darkness has a presence and it does then extend out because as we know, the light of stars is often thousands of years old by the time it gets to us. So it does stretch it out into being this big, much bigger, longer thing. It's not just darkness. It's, you know, a particular kind of absence of light that has traveled for a long time to reach you.
0: Yeah. I almost think, I mean, this is getting too far out but like black holes are kind of the only thing that could have lightless star beams in that their pull is so powerful that they it's like not just dark it's like it takes light away so it is um, an active
1: darkening or whatever when it's Um, also an inevitable pull much like you know as living beings we are inevitably pulled towards death Woo. merwin mm. did he even know it must have knew it
0: probably knew um it. yeah i also love just the phrase tireless traveler um i mean so it's interesting there's probably i mean there's a lot to say about the language of this so as a brief like contextualizing of merwin's style his first book won the Yale Younger Poets Prize, which was selected by W.H. Auden. And it was apparently... And that prize is like, you know, the big hotshot shot thing. Um, it was very formal, very like steeped in modernist traditions and stuff. And the next four of his... Three of his books were apparently very like formal and sort of technically beautiful um, things and then in the, the next book and then sort of in this book was where it kind of manifested he sort of gave up that sort of formality and what became to represent his signature style was his like total lack of punctuation and this is something that but I think you you hear it in a certain way it's just lines there's some capitalization at the beginning of every line. I was thinking about that with Tireless Traveler um, because it's interesting because the thinking about Merwin has sort of upset a a way that I had been thinking about how poetry works, that you, you kind of have, one of the beauties of poetry is that you can have two momentums that are happening at the same time in tension with each other You have your sentence momentum, um, you know, and and you have the tools of punctuation and other things to kind of like guide the arc of the sentence and, you know, make it uh, flow a certain way and bend a certain way. Um, And then you have the momentum of the line. um, And the line sort of curves the way that the language is moving in its own way. And I had kind of had this sort of, investment in the ways that that, that tension can be sort of manipulated um, to great effect. But, Merwin, um, and in this poem, really gets away from that, in that, you know, the sentence, it's not that it doesn't exist per se, but it, but it, it doesn't have the same specific force, because you don't really know when a sentence ends and so the line becomes the much more dominant um, shaper of the poem and its momentum and its meaning um, and so in this poem there's lots of different examples i think of how that can like work in cool ways one of the most basic um in the second stanza we have the kind of just the list format and this without punctuations is great for lists because you can just have a new thing like in the next line and then new thing in the next line so it's like surprise at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men like those those surprise at the earth and the love of one woman the shamelessness of men that kind of like boom 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 is sort of made possible And its momentum is kind of like carried out straightforwardly by the fact that the line breaks are happening and Mm -hmm. there's no like punctuation to disrupt it in any way. This made me think of Adrian Rich's work, particularly diving into the wreck. I'll have to link to it, but there's a great part where she's sort of, the speaker is diving into the see and is going to this wreck, And there's this kind of like, you know, I went down, I did this, I like blah, blah, blah. And the lines are kind of sparsely punctuated. And um, it really gives this sort of like descending quality. Um, and it's sort of a similar kind of effect. But then there's sort of other things that you can do. It sort of makes it each line kind of stands on its own and it comes after the, next, the previous line, so it's like connected in some way. But what's unclear because of the lack of punctuation in clear sentences is like the nature of the connection, I guess. That's like the chief sort of uncertainty that um, this sort of choice makes happen. Just, I guess, to go back to the tireless traveler. It's maybe not the most perfect example, but, and the silence will set out tireless traveler like the beam of a lightless star. Um, I guess the most obvious way to read that is that the silence is the tireless traveler. Um, But because of the way that the lines are broken up, it makes tireless traveler also like stand on its own a bit more. So it's not like, like you could say, and the silence will set out like a tireless traveler. But this is kind of like, and the silence will set out, and there's like a pause. It's like tireless traveler. There's kind of like, it's like, who's he saying it to
1: kind of thing. Um, The tireless traveler almost becomes a little bit of an address. You feel like as the reader, you are the tireless traveler for a second because in reading it you can break it when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out tireless traveler you know you can kind of push it to the side a little bit in the way that you read it depending on how you how you do yeah
0: you definitely can um and you can kind of
1: and that's something that you'd only get from punctuation and the silence will set out tireless traveler like the beam of a lightless star which then makes it, yeah. in a you know, what's up, Traveler? How's it, <laughs> how's it hanging? What's up with silence? Yeah,
0: I think that's exactly right. It also, like, affects sort of the, the tone of it. So it's like, rather than, you know, I have, um, you know, I'm trying to describe silence to you, and I got this simile. It's like a tireless Traveler silence, you know? Like, that's like a thing you could do but there's there's a very like it's like we're communicating i'm trying to paint you a picture the way that it sounds sometimes this way like and the sounds will set out tireless traveler it's like it, it's almost it's it could be for sure an address and it also could be like to himself and it's like reflective in some kind of way totally and maybe none of those are right but the 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 point I suppose is that the reason that that can be so open is is because of the lack of the punctuation. And the last thing I'll say about it, as I've gone on for quite some time, is I think that the end owes a lot of its strength to that. I have a maybe thought
1: I'm here for it.
0: Okay. For so I guess to me the clear way or one of the most plausible readings of the last line and bowing, not knowing to what is that the speaker is bowing. Um, and I, in some ways it's, I imagined the a, a kind of hunched over person at the writing desk or something. And then that's kind of being like made figurative to like, you know, you're writing or you're just like thinking about towards death and you don't really know what death is. So you're, you're kind of making a, gesture to it in the form of a bow or something. But it's just interesting the way that the thing goes. It's like, as today writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease and bowing not knowing to what. Like there's a moment in which the bowing is not the speaker necessarily and is kind of like something the speaker hears because it comes right after and the falling cease, which is something that the speaker hears. I don't know. I don't think that's really true.
1: Well, I think you put your finger on something that's very interesting about that, for sure, which is that it is so far removed, it feels like a many claused sentence, and that's the end of it, and you almost find yourself tracing your way back to, like, wait a minute, bowing and not knowing to what? What? What's happening? Because it really starts back with, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men as today. Oh, so it's like still surprised. So like as today writing after three days of rain and then it extends it again, hearing the wren sing and then it extends it again and the falling cease and bowing not knowing to what. So it's like reflected back about four times till you get to the surprised, which is where that part of the poem feels like it gets going and it carries that momentum through Um, as you were discussing the different kinds of momentum that you have in the poem there's the lines and then in punctuated poems you have sentences or punctuation that break up your momentum in different ways here it's just one momentum flow through all of that which i think gives it a particular feeling when it gets to that last line and it just kind of ends at the end of the poem
0: yeah it makes me think of the thing that's cool is like the I appears in the second stanza the first line and then he finds himself in life as in a strange garment and then the eye disappears completely um, Like and it, it's just so weird to say as today writing after three days of brain. It's like or like you would just say like today when I was writing or something like or or like and when I wrote or something like that Um and again to sort of like get rid of the i at the end and bowing not knowing to what there's like a total um you know removal of the the self the sentence is very weird and if you read that i think as like a a normal sentence like in prose you'd be like
1: bad i think well i mean first you'd run out of breath right Unless you run Michael out of breath. helps with like the lung capacity of a whatever he has the lung capacity of, baby seal probably. <laughs> like you're going to be struggling for
0: air. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but the momentum of the lines is actually sort of deceptive in that you kind of are carried along and you sort of feel like you know where you're going. And some parts are very clear. And then you find yourself at the end, and it's like, how did we get here? I don't know how we got here. Whereas I think if you read it in prose, you'd be out of breath, you'd be mad you weren't Michael Phelps, but you also would be like, I don't know where I'm going the whole time, and I don't want to finish because this is contorted. It's such a cool last line for a lot of reasons that we still have to talk about. And if you can get your reader to like wind up there without knowing that they were gonna go there, that's like just cool. Um, and like really is allows I think the line to have a kind of punch that it wouldn't otherwise.
1: Definitely, yeah, it is very cool. So all this talk about the way that the lines are used. Not necessarily in lieu of punctuation, but they're kind of all you have to break up the the flow of things or to alter the momentum. Um, something I realized is that this is a, a decently short poem. It's 13 lines and four of them start with the word and. And I don't know if this is because we recently talked about Ray Armentrout's poem and. And so I'm thinking about those connective words in a whole new way. Congratulations, Ray Armentrout. That's like kind of the point of her poetics, as I understand it, you think <laughs> about language like that. So you did it. You've restructured my brain and now I can't unsee even the simplest connective words. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was just interesting to me that and is almost always at the beginning of lines. It's not at the end. And rarely, I think there's one instance where it shows up in the middle of the line, which is at the second to last line, um, where instead of breaking that line with the next and in a list, it is... In the middle of the line hearing the wren sing and the falling seas i don't know if there's anything there it's just something that jumped out at me as soon as i was thinking about where lines start and what's going on because that's you know it's a lot of lines it's almost a third of the lines start with the word and
0: it's a lot of lines so i was reading in my uh research for this wonderful poem and found this essay about the lice, because I think in 2017, it was the 50th anniversary of its publication. And um, there's an essay on the Poetry Foundation by Adrian Raphael. And she's talking about a different poem. Um, and so she's kind of was like reading through it and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then says, there's just enough connective tissue to hold all possibilities at once, without the poems falling into ambiguous mush. But there is not one definitive reading. The lack of punctuation keeps readers in perpetual suspension, stable instability. I think is a good way of putting it. And with the, the question of and, I think part of what it does is Part of it could just be a a way of solving a problem that he created by getting rid of punctuation. Is like, how am I gonna make this like not total nonsense or like so opaque? Um, and so, keeping certain things clear um, really helps like reintroduce a level of cohesion. Um, And so like having, having the ands at the beginning sort of makes it clear to the reader that this is the beginning of a new clause, you know, or a new like phrase or whatever. And so because, you know, if you have a like a properly punctuated sentence, you can do all sorts of crazy things at the beginnings of lines and confuse the heck out of readers. I mean, some people are displeased about it, but you have a lot more uh, wiggle room because the reader can, if the sentence is properly constructed, you can read that eventually. You can get there. But if you don't have the sentence to fall back on, you can get away with less, I think, um, clarity, at least in that level.
1: I think that's very cool. I think the repetition of it towards the end particularly also adds sort of a rhythmic element because you naturally hit those ands a little harder and it adds um, to the very gentle propulsiveness of it, which I think is pretty cool. I think you're right. Okay, this last line is so good. I think it uses
0: almost every O sound, maybe all of them, but at least a lot of them. This is going to maybe sound a little wonky, but it's like goes down in pitch almost. Okay. And bowing, not knowing to what. There's like ow, which is kind of like a little higher. At least like when I say it, it's like it's harder to say bowing. Like, you know what I mean?
1: (laughs) It's at the top of the...
0: You know, bowing's at the top of the back... (laughs) ow, <laughs> we're gonna ruin this line. Um, and then not, is kind of like a like still up there, but not as not as up there as ow, and then knowing we have our o, which is kind of like in the middle, I think the o sound, classic o, and then we have oo, too, which is lower still. Ooh. And you can get low with ooh, but ooh. then <laughs> you have what? And then you have the uh. The uh sound, which I guess is not an o oh sound, but it's an uh sound. But it's in the same kind of vowel family, I would say, perhaps.
1: Um, Ow, I, oh, ooh,
0: uh. Yeah. And it's all, all in line. Okay, this is just stupid, but you could say that the sounds because they're going down are bowing a little bit. Oh,
1: uh, what? Yes. Oh, I'm there for it. Totally. But I
0: don't think that that's like the main thing.
1: No, not at doing. all. But I love that connection.
0: Anyway, it's just sort of fun. I just say, Stop.
1: you know, that is fun. fun. That's fun and cool. Yeah.
0: Um, but I think that it's, Okay, one thing that's super great about this poem is I feel like, and this is like a little little moment of sermonizing, but free verse and like, you know, poetry, contemporary poetry often doesn't have like rhyme schemes or like pure meter, you know, it's not like sing-songy, but it doesn't at all mean that the sounds of it you know like have become any less important or that like intentional musicality um becomes any less important and i feel like this is such a good example of like the sounds being so perfectly constructed and so like not drawing attention to like themselves like you can just say and bowing not knowing to what it's like not that i've heard that before I mean it's a weird way of saying it but in a good way but not in like a way where it's like oh you clearly did that to rhyme uh, you know love and glove Um, it's like come on we've all been there Um, I don't know and it's I think what's interesting and also because the, the previous line hearing the wren sing and the falling cease this is something that you were pointing out with the ings. You know, it's like hearing, sing, falling, cease has the e sound a little bit. Bowing, knowing, there's in in between the the o's. There's the ings that are happening, um, and then there's these r, like hearing and ren, kind of like complement each other really nicely. Um, And then falling leads into bowing also, like the awe kind of sound. Um, And I don't know, it's just really elegant. And I think partly I just want to dwell in the delight of just like a well-constructed string of words. Um, But I also think that it's a very uncertain ending, sort of deliberately, like you don't know what you're bowing to. And there's an interesting definitiveness in the sounds of the language, like it's so well made. Um, and I think that those go together, like in tension with each other really nicely, where you have something so certain and like perfectly put together And the content of it is like, whoa. I feel like uh, a lesser poet and probably myself at one point would be like, oh, I have uncertainty or like, um, you know, I don't know, like things are fraught right now in the content. So I should make the language really jagged or like really like I should you know mime the content in the form or whatever and i feel like this is a great instance of where the opposite is working so well where the form is like very beautiful and well composed not to like it doesn't it's not overwrought but um but that very sort of like well-constructedness allows I think you to perceive just the total yeah uncertainty of the ending I guess that's yeah. that's it yeah
1: I think that's really well stated because it is so much that it's not flowery and it's not overly precious about its subject matter but the poem as you said, it's very elegant. It feels almost effortless in the way that it moves. And to juxtapose that with this kind of subject matter creates something very powerful and creates a lot of room for more meaning than a, as you're describing, a poem that takes itself more directly against the subject matter. Okay, we're talking about death, so I need all my really big and impressive harsh words and like scary stuff. I'm, you know... (laughs) Thinking about hard time subjects. I need those, you know, real tough words, like elemental and eternal and cosmic. (laughs) And this kind of goes about that business, but in a much different way. That is, at least for me, more fun to interact with. Uh, I have one final, well, just two quick final things, which are that one of Merwin's other great poems is also about death, and I think tackles it in a similar way, but it's his incredibly short poem, Elegy, the entirety of which is elegy, who would I show it to? Which I feel like also gets at that idea of like presence of absence. You write the elegy to commemorate someone, but the person who you might most want to hear it or to who you are trying to conjure through it isn't there anymore. And that's the whole reason that it exists. Um, And then because I have The book, The Lice, uh, it does start with this quote from Heraclitus, which I think is really cool and also touches on a lot of what's going on in this poem, which uh, and this is the quote. All men are deceived by the appearances of things, even Homer himself, who was the wisest man in Greece, for he was deceived by boys catching lice. They said to him, what we have caught and what we have killed, we have left behind. But what has escaped us? We bring with us which again there's a lot going on in there which is maybe a whole separate episode of close talking Um, but the message there that both these what these boys are saying is that what like the lice we didn't catch are the ones we keep carrying on our head but what Heraclitus is saying is that Homer who was told this anecdote was deceived and that in fact what they caught and killed they also carried with them which in the context of a book about Vietnam this book hadn't been released but the things they carried by Tim O'Brien is one of the quintessential literary statements uh, reflecting back on a Vietnam or a war experience and it very much is about you know there's a short story in there literally about the physical things that soldiers carry but obviously the implication is that it's not just the the physical things but it's the stories and the experiences that get carried beyond you don't just kill and leave behind and i think that this poem in grappling with the subject of death in the way it does uh, takes that view of um, kind of existing seriously so yeah just because it's it's in that book i think that that quote that opens the book is useful in kind of contextualizing thinking about this this poem and i recommend the book check it out it's a good book great book and i love that quote yeah wow lot to think about there. A lot to chew over. A lot to think of there. Mm. Should we read it again? Yeah, let's read it again. I'll read it again.
0: For the Anniversary of My Death by W.S. Merwin. Every year without knowing it I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out tireless traveler Like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, to part at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men, as today, riding after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, and bowing, not knowing to what.
1: Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, The fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is Close Talking Poetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com Close Talking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, we're also available in addition to iTunes on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.